This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone. Welcome back to Practical Spirituality here in Jerusalem at Asia Torah with Rabbi Yom Tov Glazman. That's apparently me. Now, today what we're going to do is give tools how to achieve, you know, mastery in having good character. So that's what we're going to work at. Let's talk about a few of those character traits. So let's start with, uh, what are some good ones? Uh, motivation, you mentioned? Yeah. Okay, motivation. Uh, you mentioned patience. Okay, let's hear some other good character traits you'd like to know how to get them. Modesty. Modesty. Yeah. Honesty. Consistency. Consistency. Uh, someone said honesty. Honesty, that same thing. Honesty. Yeah. Honesty. Faithfulness. Uh, what do you mean by that? Maintaining <laughs> faith in God. Ah. Uh, or faithfulness uh-huh. to the, your your all of your relation faithfulness in relationships. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Acceptance. Perseverance is part of consistency. Okay, let's go with those for now. Anyone else got a character trait you definitely want? Okay. Very good. So what we're going to do is talk about ways of achieving each one of these. Um, From a Torah perspective. Um, So we'll start with motivation. The key in motivation is knowing what you want. The reason why so many people are not so motivated is they've been, they, they're not clear with what they want, and so many people are told to want things by their parents, mm-hmm. society, community, uh, rabbis, you know, we're told what we're supposed to want, but you can't force someone to want something. And so what it, what it does is it leaves someone in a real kind of a lurch, a lack of motivation, because you don't want what they tell you you're supposed to want, and it's not okay to want something else, so you're, you see, it's hard to feel any support or, uh, or encouragement there in what you do want, or even to figure out what you want, because I don't even want to know. I'd rather not know what I want, because if I knew what I want, then it would really hurt that I can't go do it. So, you hear that? So, so motivation is, is always going to boil down to <coughs> rutsan, or desire. And that is to figure it out. What it, what is it you really want? And the and the way to get that done is with tremendous independence. You've got to be totally independent and figure out what it is that really floats your boat. What may, what gets you motivated, turned on? What do you what do you want in life? The, our sages teaches that nothing stands before desire. Whatever it is you want. Give you an example. Ever raise your hand if you ever wanted something really badly? Okay, you ever wanted something really badly? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Those who wanted something really badly, but really badly, keep your hands up if you worked hard, you pushed hard to get it. Okay, and put your hands down if you didn't get it. Now you'll notice that almost everyone's hands are up. Only one person put their hand up. One person all over and put their hand down, which means 
nothing, God created the universe, back to vibrations, God created the universe to conspire to the desire of human beings. God created the universe to conspire to the desire of human beings. And really, probably animals too. You ever wonder sometimes, like you see on National Geographic, like there's an animal out in the polar landscape and it's walking on snow and it's hungry. And where is it going to get something to eat? All you see is white, as far as the eyes can see. But it will find its meal. God's going to bring it because it desires food. Food will eventually be coming its way. You know, they don't have like an epidemic of starving polar bears. You know, like they just keep going and they keep going and eventually their meal is on the way because God's going to establish some kind of a, a salvation for the polar bear. Now, the, um, the, the desire requires great independence. That's what I said before. Is we, we've got to look beyond the pressure of our community, pressure of our society, to go, for, to go get that motivation, to get what we want. Um, you know, the, uh, the, there's a saying that when someone's no longer on the path of Judaism, it's called off the derech, OTD, off the path. But there's a good OTD, too, that's, that's not really off the path of Torah, but it's off their path, which is the path of your parents or the path of your society. Meaning, meaning that path just wasn't your path, but you found a nice path. And so you can take that path. That's, that's your path. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you, you'll see, even if you look at your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, you look at those three sets, you'll see someone took some departure somewhere. Someone detoured. And now all of a sudden we all have to keep that, but they detour and you'll detour. And and the only thing you gotta keep your eye on when you detour as a Jew is keeping the Torah. Yeah, we don't break Torah. How you doing? We don't break Torah over this. And uh, we don't break rabbinic law over this, which is ultimately Torah, because the rabbi's job is to explain Torah. And the key traditions of our fathers, because we're supposed to keep the tradition of our father. The key traditions of our father, um, like the main ones that are traditions in our father's home, we keep those. Keep those. And your 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 life should still be recognizable in some level of tradition of your father. Now, someone whose father didn't have much of a tradition, like my own, um, he had a way he did kiddush. And even though I I'm now part of a Hasidic sect that does kiddush one way, I do my father's kiddush because I as much as I've like really chosen my own path way beyond what my father would have ever wanted me to do, I still adhere to his Kiddush. He did do Kiddush Friday night. And even though that Kiddush has different words than my shul uses, it adds a few, and it also has a different tune than my shul would use. And um, nevertheless, that was my father's tradition. I don't stray from that. I stay with it. It's clear? Um... So I'll just repeat all those things, is when you're choosing a path, you're not off the path, you're maybe off their path. And that's not necessarily bad as long as you continually keep it, you're continually keeping the Torah, which means all the rabbinic law as well, and key Masara. Uh, girls don't have to worry about Masara because they go with their husband's Masara, so you, can, you don't have to worry about that. But for us men, we have to have some key Masara so it's at least rec- the father line of the tradition through our fathers is still recognizable in some form or another. Yeah, obviously, you wouldn't choose the stuff that cramps your style, but you choose the stuff that, that you either can tolerate or enjoy. 
of our father's tradition. Okay, you got that? So How do you create desire, though? You don't need to create desire. you got to figure out what you, what you desire. Desire doesn't need any work. Desire is only figuring out what you want. Any, if you're not able to figure out your desire, if you're not able to get your desire turned on, it's only because you don't want what you've been told to want. So you got to figure out what it is you actually want. Okay? And you can do both. You can do both. You can, uh, you know, like for example, in Torah study, I, I'm not a natural Torah studier, meaning in front of the books themselves. That's not natural for me. So I've pursued all of my desires. I've succeeded Baruch Hashem in attaining most of what I want. And I, but do you think I open a book once in a while and learn? I, of course I do. Of course I do. I'm not going to throw that out. But it's, you know, my society says Torah study is the most important thing. For me, that's my least connection. Because there's four things you connect to as a Jew. Connect to Torah, tefillah, that's prayer, um, mitzvahs, and zmanim, and times. So I'm totally connected to times, totally connected to mitzvahs, somewhat, not totally, but somewhat connected to prayer, and, uh, and barely connected in actually sitting in front of books. It's just totally not my personality. So, so what do I do? I, I, I throw the biggest sukkahs parties. My Passover Seder goes to like 7.30 in the morning. And the uh, uh, two goes all night, which everyone's invited to Friday night. Not this Friday, next Friday. Don't forget, because I'm only flying in Friday. So everyone should know this, that, uh, that Friday night, um, everyone after their meal, eat a quick meal. We're also going to eat somewhat quick. And then the Tubishvat Seder starts at 10 o'clock at night, where we'll be going Kabbalistically through all the worlds and the universes in a food meditation till the morning. Uh, next Friday night, everyone's invited. It's out of this world, really out of this world. And um, that's going to be on, yeah, next Friday, Tubishvat. It's on Shabbos this year. And, um, we culminate the night with dancing around the. Uh, the trees in our courtyard. Uh, the, the party moves outside it's at dawn for the dance around the trees. I hope I'm going to have strength for this because I'm flying in uh, about three hours, four or five hours maybe before Shabbos. I'm flying in at noon uh, for, the, uh, for this event. But uh, annoying me, I'll have strength for that because my name's Yom Tov and it's a Yom Tov for the trees. You said the first thing was time. The last thing I said was time. The first thing I connect to the most is time. And what did, how do you define time? Shabbos, holidays, Tu Bishvat. I'm really into these. The, the, whatever God's channeling down to us throughout the calendar, uh-huh. that's a big connection in Judaism. So I'm, I am Rosh Hashanah when it's Rosh Hashanah. I'm Yom Kippur and Yom Kippur. I, I am it. I just get so into it. So more like a holiday. Yeah. My wife's always like, you know, are you going to study something before, you know, get prepared for Rosh Hashanah? And I'm like, I am Rosh Hashanah. I'm Rosh Hashanah. That's who I am. <laughs> and I do read. I definitely read, but I, it doesn't seem to make a difference because I am, I'm whatever I'm reading at the time in my machzor. If it's the shofar, I'm the shofar blasts. I'm, I'm totally there. I mean, my name's Yom Tov. And Yom Tov is my, my name. Yom Tov is my game. Uh, mitzvahs, tefillin. I'm least connected probably to tefillin of all the mitzvahs, probably because of the peer pressure involved when I first put it on. Uh, 
and uh, I've done a lot of work to reclaim that commandment. It was it was kind of DOA, dead on arrival, because all my roommates were going to get to film for the first time, and and every other mitzvah I was totally game. Like we all did everything together. We put on kippahs the same day. We got our tzitzis this another day. We we were keeping Shabbos the same. Like we did everything together. But when it was tefillin time, I wasn't really ready. But I didn't want to like ruin their time, and so I I started tefillin. Uh, but that messed it up. I shouldn't have done. I should have, I should have just I'll put them on when I'm ready, studied more about them, gotten to know the mitzvah. But instead, I, I, and what would have been a friend, my tefillin turned into my enemy. And uh, so years later, I, I went crazy. I, like, I, I bought a $2,000 pair. I, I sat next to the scribe who wrote the, wrote the Parshas, the best scribe maybe in the world. And the, now you can't even get his Parshas. I mean, you could, I guess, for like just the parchments, and uh, and the, I sat next to them. I delivered them to the checker. I I was there to put them in the boxes. I I went to Rebbe's and learned about tefillin. I did everything I could to reclaim such an important commandment. Shouldn't be, you know, a dead commandment for me. So I resuscitated the dead. I revived this commandment for myself. So now I like my tefillin. I actually do. I meditate with them every day. I mean, we're, we meditate three times a day, but I do separate tefillin meditations where I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I just sit in my tefillin and my talas and, and candlelights and, and I just meditate on Hashem. It's, it's really amazing experiences. So I, I strongly suggest, by the way, when's the last time you just, after davening, you just, Went and got yourself by yourself and just put on your tefillin and just just to breathe and, and focus focus yourself. I do I, when I do that, by the way, which is almost daily. It's longer than the prayer service we're in shul, and I even I'm not trying to do that. I thought I was in there for ten minutes. I come out two hours later. My wife's like, "Where have you been?" You know, once in a while she'll walk in the room and she just hears like very light music, that music. She hears that music, and the, uh, which isn't much of music. I mean, the note changes every, like, 30 seconds. And uh, little candles, and just... Because we have commandments. We have six commandments of the 613 that are purely intellectual, meaning focusing on God is one commandment. Not believing in other powers, including yourself as a power, is another commandment. God's oneness, like here, I'll open my eyes and look around the room and just remind myself this is all really part of the oneness of God. I'm going through all these various meditations and with breath work and amazing. What a better, an amazing use of tefillin. And I say Shema, obviously. Uh, at some point, when it climaxes, like when I get to the ultimate feeling of connection, then I do a Shema for like a minute. Like a really long Shema, one breath per word. Real slow Shema. I mean, this is like Amazing, and that's after prayers. But I highly suggest. Do you have a good prayer room in your house? Yes, I've created my little uh, my little sanctuary. Yeah. It has. Uh, ask me right after. I'll show you the, uh, some of the accoutrements. Now, the uh, not to mention that little burning sage helps. Uh, you know, the room's definitely got beautiful smells. And, um, 
the, I'm going to go on to the next point, but the reason I'm embellishing this so much right now, because I'm really going like, I've done like eight, ten minutes on this, is that Judaism is a spiritual discipline. Get disciplined, you'll get the spiritual. Judaism is a spiritual discipline. I don't think any of us would dream that if we flew to India to spend a few years there studying to you know, become what's called enlightened, which is about halfway up the la- Jacob's ladder for Judaism. That's only halfway is enlightenment. The top's prophecy. But those who would fly to India just to get halfway up Jacob's ladder for enlightenment, I would think are going to be going in there mentally prepared for discipline. You're going to have to be disciplined. But because we're born into Judaism, unlike someone who chooses to go, you know, for some monastic vows or something, because we're born into it, it becomes like our old underwear. Judaism just is your undershirt, you know, you've been wearing it forever. And it hasn't done it for me, man. So I'm doing other things. Oh, yeah? No. Judaism's a spiritual discipline. Get disciplined, you will, you will experience the spiritual. Right? That's why I talked about that. Normally, I do not share with you guys. Have you ever heard me sharing my private practices like that? Never. <laughs> I don't share that stuff usually. I'm sharing it because it's a spiritual discipline. You've got to be disciplined to experience the spiritual. Now, the next is um, patience. So, when it comes to patience, the, the best thing to do in, uh, in patience is going to be two main things. One is the now, now, and the other is the uh, is breathing. The receiving of something, let's put it like this couple of things to say. Number one is, this moment now, like today, is the, this is the day you feared yesterday. And you see everything's going pretty well. Most of you, let's start that again, that didn't go over. Most of what you fear is something that's yet to happen. It's the future. You get that? Most of your fear in life is really what's coming. But now is the future that you're worried about. And so far, so good. It seems to always work out. So what are you so worried about? What are you so worried about? And, and why, are you, why are you afraid of something that's a fiction? The future is an absolute fiction. It can come... I mean, an infinite being can create the future in infinite ways. So you, whatever, whatever structure of some future you're worried about is one of infinite possibilities. And so it's insane to be worrying about how the future is going to work out. But the one thing you know for sure is now. Right now. And so, uh, uh, maybe I'll just illustrate it with a story. My, my, um, I took on at one point in my life to drive legally. And uh, it, was, it was a very rough call because basically I got thrashed for, for my crazy antics behind the wheel. And, and I took on to drive legal. I, I don't know how long I held on to that, but I did hold on to it for a few weeks. After a few days, my wife... Um, the problem is where I live is only... Uh, is, it's kind of hard to drive legally. <laughs> it's full of... Um, 
different bus routes and stuff that are only really the only way to really access my house in any normal time is I have to go on those routes. But I notice they don't bother me. Maybe that's because I have a van. They're like thinking I'm more of a public transport. I don't know. I got a nine-seater, so it could be that's why. Because they seem to look the other way when I when I'm driving on that that area. The police don't seem to ever bother me about it. But the anyway. But I took it on. It was the most extreme exercise in patience for me to just sit there on these routes that I was taking and sit there and be in a long left turn line instead of just flying around the front car. Yeah, being in a long left turn line. It was it was really difficult. So I was telling my wife how hard it is to be patient, you know, and I, I really got to work on my patience. And she said, she said, sweetheart, the problem isn't patience. The problem is, or the, what you need to work on is being there. Like just be in your car. What's so wrong? You bought the car. You chose the interior. That's the stereo you wanted. You know, like the, the view. It comes with a view. My car comes with me. She's like, your problem is that you're already there before you got there. Just be in the process. So patience is usually patience towards a goal. Patience for something you wanted to happen. But when you get into the now, and you're just in that moment, so there's nothing you need to be patient for. As long as you set things up to occur, meaning to get that goal, and you're working towards that goal, is to be in the now of the process toward that goal. And all of a sudden, she was right, by the way. I hung up the phone with her. I looked at my view, turned up the music a little bit, sunk deeper into my chair. I think I even tilted it back a little. And I just said, here I am, in heaven. You know, I'm in my own little world. It was wonderful. Yes, I'm going somewhere. And I'll keep my GPS. Kind of nice thing about GPS I know with the negative is people don't know where they're going anymore because it takes you there. And so you stop kind of having your own sense of things. But on the positive side is you don't have to think about it. You can think about all the other cool things to think about while you're sitting there trying to get there. Okay, you got that? Number one was being in the now. And the two is to breathe just because when you're lacking patience, you generally get more anxious. Your chest gets tight. Your breathing gets shallow. So when, when you're in a situation where you're fighting your patience, so putting some air in those lungs, expanding the lungs, releasing the muscles in the chest that tighten when we're feeling impatient, that's always going to help. It gets rid of all the anxiety of, of the situation. Fair? Okay, modesty. Modesty. Oh, man. Um... I guess we'll start with the definition of modesty in Judaism. The definition for modesty is to recognize your greatness in seeing at the source as God. Recognize your greatness as sourced in God. Everyone try that? Recognize, let's wake you guys up. Recognize your greatness as sourced in God. What is your great? You're great. Thank you. You are great. You're welcome. You are great, and God is the source of that, not you. You are amazing. God's the source of how amazing you are, not you. That's the definition of modesty in Judaism. You see, the Gentile definition of Judaism is... Of Judaism. 
the Gentile definition of modesty is that you're nothing. But nothing is more what victims of abuse get. You know, childhood abuse usually feel like they're nothing. That's, that's not for people. That's someone who needs therapy. Okay? That's not our definition of modesty. Modesty in Judaism is you are amazing. You are awesome. You are created in the image of God. But who's the source of all this? God, not you. So, so that's the definition of modesty. And rabbis go, like big rabbis go into depth on how treif, the word treif, um, how unkosher it is to go with the Gentile definition of modesty. To see yourself as nothing, no one, nobody. That definition of modesty is the rabbis tell us is like, it's like, that's a great way to wind up in serious transgressions. You know, you, you are amazing. You are beautiful. You are gorgeous. You are brilliant. You are, you are awesome. And God made you that way. And to say anything else is spitting in his face. But to say you're not all those things invites all kinds of other behaviors because our behavior follows our way of perceiving ourselves. Our behavior follows our perceptions. If I perceive myself as holy, holy is what I do. If I perceive myself as profane, so profanity is what I do. It's how you perceive yourself is what's going to cause the actual actions in your life. So by perceiving yourself as this holy being that God created you as, which he really did, automatically it leads to a sense of godliness within you. And... And that's amazing. And you don't hold yourself above everybody at all, or anybody. Why? Because guess what they're made of? Godliness. So, so I want to share. I want to share it. There's only enough for uh, one of us, so let's each have half. You get that? Let's each have half. Let's split it. Yeah. Are humility and modesty related? Humble. I was doing this all about humbleness, like humility. So they're kind of conditioned. That's the way I was defining. Okay. Now, modesty no, has a whole other aspect. Right, that's what I was um, and, and the whole other aspect has to do with you know, modesty of uh, how you show your wealth and how you show your body and how you show how you show your stuff, basically. And that's a separate thing. I don't think that was the, this, the question, though, because we're talking yeah. more character traits. Although right. that is a bit of a character trait of how you hide your mm-hmm. your uh, blessings. Um, but I will give it a word or two. It's just, uh, you, if you do have an extra blessing financially, looks, strength, uh, uh, abilities, so you definitely want to wrap those up. Uh, Judaism teaches us the more special something is, the more wraps it gets. So like, for example, the Torah has, first it has a belt, then it has a, a uh, like a cover, then it has a, um, then it has an ark, and then it has uh doors and then it has a curtain and it's in the center of shul so like everyone's eyes are on it and like nothing can get taken from there without everyone noticing it's uh it's the holiness comes with the most amount of wraps but also a lot of tours come with a breastplate too they'll have a silver plate on them as well sometimes and so something that's more sanctified more special anything more special comes with more wraps and for example, women are way more special than men. You know, they're, they're just more special. They, if you if you take a, um, a even the best looking man walking by, 
Um, and women may look at him. I mean, our generation, women will look at him, but 70 years ago, before feminism made men into such a big deal, the, um, the, uh, if you go before that, yeah, some women will look at him, some women won't, some women wouldn't even think about it. It wouldn't be like an, a sexual thing at all as an occurrence of sexuality. Maybe it would be a, a kind of a, uh, a sense of beauty about him, but wouldn't necessarily even turn sexual in this vision of this guy. Um, there would maybe be respect or something. It would kind of be like the newscast. Have you guys noticed that the newscasters on television, the, it's always this old guy and then, and then like three supermodels. Yeah, it's an old guy and three supermodels who have somehow they found three supermodels with brains, you know, because they're really smart. <laughs> Those women are so smart. It was really shocking, like uh, that, that God put it all in one address. But I guess with 300 million Americans, you can find you know a couple of these pe- people who's had the looks, and most women with those kind of looks completely ride on their looks and give up on all the other character development. Uh, including the brains and the, uh, and here you got it all in one address. I don't know what their attributes, what their characters. Are. I don't know what their marriages are like. I don't know what their parenting is like, but they certainly are smart. Anyway, but the the women are very different in that way. There's a beauty to women that men just simply don't have, and it's to all women. All women have this beauty, and because of that beauty, so it needs more wrapping. Someone who's brilliant should not be flaunting it. He should be. He should be covering it. Someone who's wealthy and lives like much more wealthy than his neighbors needs to drive a car like his neighbors. He shouldn't have some Maserati hiding inside the the garage. You know, I mean if he really, really needs a Maserati, he can hide it in the garage. He can take it out at two in the morning, but don't go wash it on Sunday for all your neighbors with their Dodge and Pontiacs and you know to look at your Maserati. You want to cover your wealth as much as possible. Claire, cover up anything special, whatever is special you're covering. That's the way it goes. And the reason why is kind of Kabbalistic. The reason why is because it causes jealousy. And when you cause jealousy, the, can I define jealousy? If you click on the word jealousy, you know what it is? It says like this. He doesn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve that. That's jealousy. There's nothing wrong with that. I'd also like one. That's not jealousy. If you pull up to a red light in your, what do you drive? Uh, Sentra. You drive a Nissan Sentra? You drive a Sentra. You pull up at a light, a Nissan Sentra, and, and next to you is some, like, it's a, it's a BMW X, X6. You know what that one is? Yeah. It's an amazing car. You, it pulls up next to you. For you to say, for Jacob to say, I'd also like one of those cars, is that called jealousy? No, that's fine. You want one of those cars? Great. Go work for it. Now you saw it. Now you work for it. Okay, it's great. But to say, who the hell is that guy think he is in a car like that? I should be there. Not I should be sitting in that car, not him. Now, I can't even imagine saying such a thing, but do people say stuff like that in their hearts? Yeah. Really? That's, that's just sick. I mean, you, you got to be, a, no offense, a sicko. <laughs> you know? Like, why would you want some poor... Like sweet person with their own life and their own issues to be out of that car. They earned that car. They worked for that car. Or their family worked for that Their grandparents worked for that car. But like, why would you be hassling some poor guy in his car or some guy with his trophy wife? 
nothing better to do. Nothing better to do. Anyway, so what happens is when they say, hey, he doesn't deserve that, you know where it goes? You know where those words go? They reverberate up to heaven. And then it opens up this file. Did you guys know that each of us has a file in, in, in heaven? Mm-hmm. We all have a file of everything we got and versus everything our, that were our deeds. Now, what God wants for every human being, because he loves us, he's crazy about us, is he wants to keep the file closed so he can give us much more than our deeds. That's just like, he's like a father. My, I'm the same. I'm the absolute same. Like my wife says, you're not taking Moishi mountain biking because of X, Y, and Z. She's saying he doesn't deserve it. You know what I now have to do? Because let's say we're going mountain biking at 4 and it's now 9 a.m. I have now, I have now, I don't know what the math is, but a certain amount of hours. Anyone know how many hours? <laughs> 9 to 4 is. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, well, 9 to 12 is 3. It's 7 hours. Seven. I, have se- <laughs> I have 7 hours to advocate for this kid. You know, give him some other punishment, or let's make him do some other work. So he- Get him out, because I just want to, I don't want to open the file. You get that? I'm his father. Like, I, when she told me what he did, I like tried so hard not to even hear it. I was like trying not to hear it. It was like, it was like when, <laughs> best example is when I used to come up red-eyed with all my friends from being out, you know, we're teenagers, drinking beer, and everything else people do that gets red eyes um, in L.A. And we'd come back with our skateboards. We're all like long hair, like punks. And my, my mom just looks at my eyes, which are like, fire engine red and Chinese yeah. <laughs> and she's just like you're stoned and and, and and I'm like I'm not <laughs> I am not and and then she what she would do is she would she brings me over to my father and she says to my father she says his name's Manny she says Manny look at his eyes I remember this, and I'll never forget this. This happened multiple times. I'll never forget my father's love for me. It was so amazing. I felt so much. In fact, I almost enjoyed this. He would come to me, hold my shoulders to look in my eyes. He would look that way. My, my mom would be, you know, behind him. He would look that way. He would look this way. He would look that way. <laughs> above, below, everywhere but my eyes. He would never look my eyes. And he would turn to her and say, he looks fine. He'd give me hell later. <laughs> He'd give me hell later. And he, he really hated it. Always, you know, try to get us to to stop smoking. But the uh, but you know, you know what we told him? Uh, we said, whenever he told us to stop smoking, we always said, but Dad, you told us never be a quitter. And then he slapped you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know. So... Anyway, but that, that all changed when... Uh, is, it, is it almost far? It's far? Yeah. That all changed when I got into Talmud study. There's something about Talmud study and grass that just... They don't go together. And the beauty is that all the grass smokers, all the pot smokers that come to yeshiva, we don't even have to say anything because it's just a matter of weeks until they just say, like, what am I, what am I thinking? Like, here I am working and working and working and working to learn the Talmud. Come Saturday night, someone lights a joint, I come in Sunday morning to yeshiva, I can't remember even what subject the Talmud was talking about. I don't even know what subject. And the rabbi's like, okay, let's get going. With what? It's gone. It's gone. Like, whatever I studied is gone. But really gone. And so while the rest of the class is progressing, you're back to the beginning. 
And so we don't actually even mention pot smoking to our students. It's irrelevant, because once they get in the Talmud, it's just going to get rid of itself. And then they'll forget, meaning that they, 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 so they won't smoke for a month, and then they'll smoke at the end of the month, like at a party or something. And then the next day they get in there, it's gone. And they're like, what am I doing? Why would I do this? And so eventually it's just gone. And, I mean, it's not just pot. It's not just pot. We've had people on heavy stuff that requires rehab, requires rehab, and are perfectly clean. By the time they're here for half a year, perfectly clean. Amazing. And we don't, we don't do much. You know? Just check in with them a little bit. How you doing? What's up? You know, like, where are you holding? And they're like, I'm, I'm almost out of this. You know, but we don't say anything. Just Judaism. And I heard, I don't know if it's true, but I heard there's an AA group in uh, New York that when a Jew shows up to an, for their first time to a meeting, they say, you know what, before you join AA, why don't you start keeping the Torah? Why don't you start keeping the Torah, and then if you still have an addiction problem, come on back. Yeah. yeah. People who are Torah observant have a much different relationship to addiction. And it's, uh, it's not, not the same. Although there are people who are keep the Torah who are hardcore addicts, and uh, they, they know who they are, and they have to drink grape juice for Kiddush. So, now... Uh, so regarding modesty, how can we put that in a nutshell? Well, I, I was just saying regarding the other modesty is if they uh, if it op- if someone is jealous of you because you didn't put your specialness under wraps, so then what happens is it opens the file and the file's like God's been pouring mountain bike rides on you and He's been pouring blessings on you with very little merit next to it and a lot of demerit from all the stupid stuff you did. Your file gets open. You know what the punishment is for the jealous guy? His file's also open. So anyone who's jealous is doing a bad thing because they're opening the file of the person that didn't properly cover up. By the way, if he properly covered up, he doesn't get nailed. If he did cover up, but he just, anyway, someone picked on him, that's, that's not their problem. For example, if a woman dressed modestly, and she, but she really covered it up, and, uh, and someone that nevertheless, because beauty is beauty. You're going to see it. Every, every woman has a, something called a chain that glows no matter what you do. And the funny thing is, is the more is a weird thing. And some of you guys might know what I'm talking about here. Don't, you can tell me if you sense this. Is that the more covered up they are, the more it's new, the more modest they dress, the more the chain shines. So the more attractive they get. You, got, you know what I'm talking about? Give a pop if you know what I'm talking about. Give a pop. So, but they, it's an amazing thing. And you'll find also a lot of the guys who are raised secular, who are used to girls who uncover themselves as much as possible. When they come to Torah, they're so sick of that because it's so cheap. They've seen so much cheapening in their lives. They've seen women literally depreciate their value, leaving nothing to the imagination and, and showing it all. So when they come here... And they're suddenly learning, like, about, like, real, like, true values, eternal values. They, they, they no longer have any interest whatsoever for the woman who's showing everything. But on the opposite, they have incredible craving for what's called the chin, is the glow 
of the of the woman who actually dresses modestly, which causes an inner shine, and that inner shine is is what becomes beautiful to them. Now this all gets totally lost on the whole wig thing, where you got all these women going out around in wigs. So the the if a woman wants to have chain, that inner glow, she can't go in a wig. That's just the way it is. You just can't. You can't have them both. So you can have glamour. You can have the external stuff with a beautiful wig, but you can't have chain. Chain doesn't come with wigs. And, uh, and so, contradict, you think the wig contradicts that? Yeah. I mean, I, it goes back to the glamour. It goes back, it goes back to the external beauty, and, uh, which is yafet. You know, it's yofi. And uh, it goes back to the external beauty, and but at the expense of chain. Expense of chain. But Hain's the amazing stuff. Hain's the eternal stuff. Hain doesn't matter if you get lines on your face. You get all wrinkled. It doesn't matter if you're heavy. It doesn't matter if you're thin. It doesn't matter if you're in shape. It doesn't matter if you're out of shape. It doesn't matter what your complexion is like. Nothing. Hain doesn't care. That's why every every bride on her wedding day is so gorgeous. It's the saying that every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. Why? Because, first of all, she's covered head to toe, but that's not why. The reason is because everyone loves her. Hundreds of people are coming to say, we love you, and we support you, and we're behind you, and we're going we're gonna to take you to your chuppah. You are totally 100% cared for and loved and supported. And all of a sudden, she just, like light comes off of her. The groom as well glows, but not like the kala. Not like the bride. So a woman has to decide what kind of beauty she wants to be portraying. One lasts forever, and the other, you're going to be that 80-year-old lady with the blonde shaitel, or the, you know, the brown shaitel, and, and, you know, all made up, and, you know, they're the cutest in the world, those old ladies. I love them. But, they're, but again, you, you know, the, the muscles in the face can't hold up the makeup. You know, they, the muscles in the face can't hold the weight of the stuff they put on to try to make up for the lack of chain. And whereas chain, you need so little makeup, your facial muscles go all the way to the day you die. And uh, someone who's beautiful within and never needs makeup, you know, you may a little from the <laughs> little from the bags under the eyes of being overworked with way too many kids. <laughs> you know, okay, you know, a little something just to make you look like you're still alive. <laughs> you know, but um, I mean only from the exhaustion. I'm just discussing the exhaustion. Thank you very much, everyone. We'll do the rest of the attributes tomorrow. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.